Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. Today we are talking to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. You've probably seen him over the past few years doing interviews on COVID and the terrible response of many states to COVID by placing draconian restrictions like lockdowns, shutting down schools, mask and vaccine mandates. He is an epidemiologist and a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He has been one of the most important voices in pushing back against these destructive policies that we have seen over the past few years. And now that we are seeing universities and cities, districts, public schools re-implementing some of these mandates that have been proven to fail. I wanted to get his perspective. So we are going to talk to him about that, what the response should have been and should be. We are also going to talk about this study that recently came out about SSRIs, depression medications, and why they are so ineffective. It is apparently because this theory of chemical imbalance is causing depression is actually not true. So he's going to give us his response to that. And then we are also going to talk about this terrible story um, of the of this Alzheimer's medication fraud and what that means, what happened there and what the consequences are and what accountability should look like. Then he's going to give us some recommendations for how we can reform public health and how public health entities can win back public trust. As always, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. So the theme that you are going to hear in this conversation is that science is not God. Scientists are not infallible. That's what I kept on taking away from what he was saying about how science changes, how it evolves, how it should evolve based on facts, based on the information that we have. And when someone like Tony Fauci says before Congress that I am science and anyone who disagrees with me disagrees with science, that is extremely, um, it's, it's, it's symbolic, it's representative of where our public health entities, where the scientific community, if you will, has gone. It's gone from trying to find the facts and trying to come to conclusions based on those facts and then communicating those conclusions truthfully to the public to really a kind of scientism, a kind of religion, um, basically asserting that scientists who have a particular position if that position is held by those who are in power, is infallible and it's indisputable. And this is the danger, of course, of replacing God with anything, but particularly of science. People say that we have to trust the science, we should follow the science. But look, science is created, investigated, and discovered by human beings who are fallible. And ultimately, all of science, all of the world was created by a God who is infallible. So we cannot place the same faith in science or so-called science as we do in the God who is immutable, unchangeable, who is the authority over what is and what isn't, what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And we have seen the deadly consequences 
of switching the God of Scripture with the God of Science over the past few years. So today with Dr. Bhattacharya, we are going to talk specifically about what those consequences have looked like and where we have so disastrously got it wrong and how we can in the future get it right. So without further ado, here is epidemiologist and professor Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Nice to be here. Thank you, Ali. Yes. So you were dubbed in the beginning of COVID and looking at our COVID response as the anti-lockdown voice. Of course, you had a lot of conservative media who wanted to talk to you and gain your insight. And then you had some left-wing media who opposed you and who, I don't know if they really scientifically disagreed with you, but they didn't like your message. Tell us what it has been like over the past couple of years kind of being deemed the voice of anti-lockdowns during COVID? I mean, I, for me now, it's a source of pride. I think I think I was right the, yes. uh, in 2020, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's been the right strategy. I, actually, I have to say, it's been um, shocking to me to see the polarization, political polarization. I just, I uh, spent my career writing scientific papers. Uh, I would write papers that go into journals and, you know, 15 to 50 people would read it and be all excited about it. Um, and uh, that then um, in 2020 to, to, to all of a sudden be thrust into the, the into the national spotlight over uh, over what I thought of as just basic epidemiology is still absolutely stunning to me. Um, it's been it's been uh, uh, <laughs> I mean in many ways it's been very very difficult. Uh, like a lot of my lost friends, uh, right. the, the, the the Stanford hasn't really treated me all that well. Um, uh, but I, uh, I've also had uh, the opportunity to meet some incredible people and to participate in some of the most important policy decisions that uh, that uh, I will ever have the privilege to participate in. So it's it's been it's been good in that way. It's been interesting. I'm sure that you didn't think that you were going to be thrust into the middle of a political debate when you were giving your epidemiological position, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'll know the pandemic is well and truly over when I no longer get invited to podcasts, Jolly. <laughs> right, right. I know. It's a sign of the times that I messaged you on Twitter to have you come on, but I'm thankful for it. Uh, for those who may not know, can you just kind of summarize what your position has been on the COVID restrictions that have been implemented, especially the ones that you and I both would agree are draconian, like shutting down businesses and schools? Yeah. So uh, basically, the, the the key idea that motivated me throughout the pandemic is uh, first you have to get good data on what who the who are actually at risk from COVID in terms of bad outcomes. Um, and uh, if you look at the data from the very earliest days of the pandemic, uh, it was very clear that it was really older people and certain certain people some some chronic conditions, but mostly it's older people that face an elevated risk of mortality. I did a study early in the pandemic measuring the mortality rate of the of the disease um and it you know so the, there's thousand fold difference in the risk of dying uh, maybe maybe like if you're over the age of 70 70 uh you know one two three four five percent very high risk especially if you're in a, in a nursing home of dying if you get infected whereas if you're younger and uh it's very very low people under the age of 70 maybe 99.95 percent survival and this was before the vaccine um so it, it there's this huge gradient in risk in terms of the ba of bad outcomes from the disease. At the same time, the lockdowns themselves that we adopted, especially the more draconian ones, are absolutely deadly. 
right? So just just take children, right? We we locked children out of school in so many states, and actually many places around the world did this. Um, and yet we know from a huge literature that precedes the pandemic that that this is actually very bad for the health of children throughout their entire lives. Uh, children that skip even short periods of school have sh- shorter, less healthy, poorer lives. That's essentially what we've consigned a very large number of our kids to. Um, and end up, you know, for, for young adults, uh, the psychological effects are just devastating of these lives. One in four young adults seriously considered suicide in, uh, in June of 2020. Uh, so my position has been that it's not ethical to harm young people uh, for to protect themselves them against a disease for which they face very low risk um, by lockdowns. We should not be doing lockdowns for younger people. Whereas for older people, uh, what what needs to happen is very creative engagement with with uh, public health professionals to understand how to protect them. Uh, focus protection of the old. Uh, so th- those are the basic two tenets of, of how it, I've been thinking about the right policy. Uh, pay attention to epidemiological uh, risk stratification, lift the lockdowns, focus protection for the old. Just to emphasize um, what you're talking about when it comes to consequences on children, that are, there have been several studies now that have been published in the past year proving this. The Telegraph reported on one study that showed that COVID lockdowns left toddlers unable to speak or play properly. And I'm sure that it wasn't just the lockdowns, but it was also probably the masking of their teachers and even their parents, whether it's daycare, kindergarten, first grade teachers, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists raised fear that the gaps of being witnessed now could widen in coming years. Um, the the disparities are 79, or it says, um, sorry, the Office for Health Improvement and Disparity show that 79.6% of children who received a review last autumn met the expected level in all five areas of development measured. But of course, that is down from years prior. And so tell me what you think about the consequences that I don't even know if we've begun to see the full extent of the consequences that we are going to see on child development, on language development, on their ability to normally socially interact and communicate with one another, that really makes me nervous as a mom. I mean, it makes me nervous too as a dad. I mean, I, although my, my kids are a little older now, um, but uh, other than, you know, they face their own challenges as a result of the lockdowns. Uh, the, 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 the effect on young kids is almost un- incalculable. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how do you teach a kid to read over Zoom? Right. I mean, that's essentially what we decided that we we're going to do for a very large number of kids. And, um, you know, and it's not even it's not it's it's it, it is one of these things where, like, you think, OK, well, it just it's just a couple of years. We can fix it. But, you know, those are crucial to- time in the development of children. Mm-hmm. Fixing it is a, is, a, is a major challenge. It's not even may, may not be possible for many kids. And uh, the the level of disengagement um, really it wasn't equal throughout society. Right. It's it's poor families. Uh, it, it's it's minority families that pay the the bigger cost of this. Right. Uh, you know, if you if you were if you had to, uh, both parents had to work, or if you were a single parent household, what do you do when you you know you you have a young child, you have to work, um, and they have to go out learn on Zoom, um, right. and and you know the, and, and and lots and lots of uh, of what happens for development requires children to be in community with other children. Which just normally happens during schooling, during during just it's part of the the way that kids learn is by look by being with other adults, being with other kids, 
Um, and so it's not surprising that we're seeing this. And uh, the only question in my mind is how do we how do we address these deficits that we caused? Uh, it, it, I, I mean, I, I, I think we absolutely need to have an all hands on deck try to approach to try to fix this. It's, it's a major, major problem. Whether yeah. it's possible is not clear. Yes. And to your point about this disproportionately impacting communities that we would typically call marginalized or however you want to describe it, special needs kids, of course, bore the brunt of this. I talked to a lot of speech therapists that listened to this podcast that their job was basically rendered impossible because they were forced to wear masks when they are trying to teach, whether it's a toddler, young kid, or whether it's an older kid with special needs autism, whatever it is, how to pronounce words. It's imp- I mean, it's impossible. The I mean, the biggest aspect really of speech therapy is showing not just allowing them to listen to how a word is pronounced, but showing them how to pronounce the words. I don't know if those kids are, at, even if we have all hands on deck, I'm not confident that those kids are ever going to be able to make up for the time and the care lost. And it's strange to me how that has become almost a partisan position. Maybe it's not anymore, but it certainly was, that you were deemed uncompassionate if you said, hey, there are going to be some long-term <laughs> consequences for these underserved communities over here. I mean, the American Association of Pediatrics actually put out a uh, a position saying that there was no evidence of yes. deficits caused by masking. I mean, I was absolutely stunned. Like, how do they right. know? You, you, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, and for older kids, for, 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 uh, you know, like, uh, you know, kids in middle school or, or high school, the, the learning deficit is shocking. Grade school, even, um, you have like fourth graders who can do math barely at a first grade level. Yeah. You know, you have, uh, you know, not surprising given that we've disrupted three years of schools in some places. Um, you, you have like kids that just, you know, they're, they don't know how to read, uh, very well. Uh, it's, it is, um. Yeah, and 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 again, it's 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 compl- it's very very unequal. If yeah. it's young, it's it's older. It, I'm sorry, it's it's poorer people, poor mm-hmm. families, working class families that have had a much more difficult time um, making making sure that the kids don't have these deficits. Uh, and it, I don't. I, I just. It, it, I mean, I look at the devastation caused by the school closures, and I am absolutely. Stunned. I I worked um, actually in. Uh, summer and uh, early fall of 2020, I helped um, with this lawsuit. I advised this lawsuit uh, that the, what Governor DeSantis had decided to open the schools in Florida in, 2020, in fall of 2020, issued this order, and he was sued by the Florida teachers unions. Um, and, you know, they, they actually had trouble finding an expert on 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 our side to say look it's wrong to close the schools right. uh, and so I, this is one of my proudest moments is like I got to help with that lawsuit we we actually lost like because the the in the, the uh, in in the sort of like the district court um, and uh, I mean I was sh- shocked because I mean it was clear the the judge didn't understand the science at all it didn't really fully appreciate the importance of keeping schools open um, and we, we finally won in in the Florida uh, Court of Appeals. So uh, the school stayed open. Well, again, one of my proudest, proudest moments is to be, be able to help with that lawsuit. All right, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day. That is Eden Pure. This is an air purifier for your home. 
We use several of these in our home. We absolutely love it. If you've got odors in your home, litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, dirty diapers, cooking smells, this air purifier gets rid of those odors and freshens your home so you never have to worry about breathing dirty air again. They use Oxy technology that quickly destroys the viruses, the odors, the mold, and a lot more. So it's not just masking the smell, it's actually getting rid of the particles that are causing the smells. The thunderstorm, their uh, their air purifier, takes up no floor space. You just plug it directly into the wall. It's super quiet. We've got some in different rooms of our home, and it really does make a big difference. You can also travel with you. Stick it in the outlet in your hotel room. Works really well. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Use discount code Allie to save $200. That's three Thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200 and shipping is free. EdenPureDeals.com. Discount code Allie. EdenPureDeals.com. Code Allie. Well, it does seem like the many of the so-called experts and certainly bureaucrats, people in charge, teachers unions really don't care about the facts available. Still, after all this time, you've got San Diego school districts saying that they are going to re-implement the mask mandates. Look, we've got data upon data showing that mask mandates don't actually lower the case level. They don't actually bring down the fatality rate. I mean, that is not even arguable at this point. And of course, I've seen you retweet David Zwig. He is a journalist who has talked about the CDC studies that said that they prove that mask mandates in schools work and how faulty those studies are. They don't actually prove what the summary of the studies say that they prove. And so it really we're still back to these teachers unions, to these administrators, these politicians just wanting to, quote, do something whether or not there is any benefit. And there's not. There's actually only harm to these kids. And it's really hard for me to understand at this point what the motivation could be. It's uh I'd say if you go back to before 2020, there was a an excellent literature on the effectiveness of mask mandates in slowing the spread of flu. Now, flu spreads in similar ways to uh, to COVID. Uh, it spreads via aerosolization events. You know, you you breathe. Uh, the 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 uh, your breath contains uh, tiny tiny particles that that sit in the air forever. Moisture particles that that contain the virus. Uh, so if you're in a poorly ventilated room. Um, the, the, when that when those aerosols come out, the aerosols are like clouds, droplets are like rain. The, the masks may stop the droplets, but they don't really stop the aerosols. If you wear glasses and your glasses get fogged up when you breathe through a mask, that's an aerosol escaping. Mm-hmm. Which and um, so it's, uh, there are a dozen randomized trials from before the pandemic with the flu, good high quality randomized trials that found that mask mandates in community settings and actually even even sometimes in in hospital settings uh, have a very difficult time slowing the spread or stopping the spread of of the flu that was the that was the science before the pandemic nothing's changed the, the two randomized trials that have been done since the pandemic started uh, both in adults not in children um, found very small or zero effects of protection by masking um, and we still to this date have not a single randomized study that shows that masking uh, in children actually stops the disease spread. 
And, you know, there's lots of reasons to think it doesn't. Children are not particularly good at wearing masks, especially young children. The World Health Organization doesn't recommend masking children below the age of six. But, you know, you have New York City masking toddlers up until just a couple months ago. Um, and, you know, the, like, the European CDC doesn't recommend masking kids below the age of 12 on the basis of that might cause them some harm. I mean, I, I, and if you look at the, uh, you know, districts that, that wore masks, that mandated masking kids versus districts that didn't, um, you find no difference over and over again in these, whenever you do a careful study that, that doesn't cherry pick the data. Um, so I, I just don't understand what science people are looking at when they demand mask mandates. Uh, it's, it's, it's as if they have told themselves this story about, uh, about, about how effective they are, but that just isn't consistent with what the scientific data show. You've been in epidemiology for several decades, for a long time now. So you must have been familiar with Anthony Fauci. Maybe that you've worked with him before. I don't know if you have, but certainly you said that you've been at Stanford for 35 years. I'm sure that you knew who Anthony Fauci was, his work in the AIDS epidemic. Um, tell me your reaction to or what you think about his leadership and his response to COVID over the past few years. Does it surprise you at all? Uh, I mean, I, I had a lot of respect for him at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I um, have on my bookshelf a, a, a textbook that he added at Harrison's Internal Medicine, which is sort of the, the, the one of the key texts in training training uh, internal medicine doctors that, that I, I read when I was uh, when I was in, in training in medical school. Um, and uh, of course, he's he's had this incredibly long career. Where he's played a, such a, a, an important role in um, in 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 so many uh, parts of American science. Uh, d- during the pandemic, I have been absolutely shocked by his leadership, uh, and 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 I I don't know how to say this in a, in a polite more polite way. I mean, I just, I think he is a he's he's a failed leader. Uh, you know, uh, uh, probably the, the the to like the worst moment was I saw. Uh, him talking with Senator Paul, I think, in a Senate hearing, where Senator Paul is just asking him questions, um, and he, his, Tony Fauci's response was, "Well, if you're if you're questioning me, you're not simply questioning a man; right. you are questioning science itself." Yeah, I, I uh, that kind of hubris is absolutely shocking to me. Like yeah. you can't you cannot have anybody uh, uh, at the top of the American scientific bureaucracy thinking that he himself the science beyond questioning. And uh, what he's done is he's, the, 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 if you want to characterize exactly the kind of action he's done, he believes that he is right beyond all question. And then anyone challenging him is therefore on the fringe and dangerous. And he's acted in ways essentially to create this illusion of consensus, scientific consensus around the, his policy preferences, which are, which are essentially locked down. Um, in, in, uh, in, and uh, and delegitimize or push to the edge or call fringe uh, anyone who, who disagrees with them, even if they have, uh, you know, sort of good scientific data and arguments. Uh, it's not the way that uh, a scientific, uh, like a like science bureaucracy or, or public health ought to behave. Or science, I mean, um, uh, public health can't work unless it's truly rooted in science. Um, and the scientific discussion around what the right policy is is not. There's no consensus. There hasn't been, even though uh, the media and Tony Fauci has pushed this idea that there is. Yeah. And I think that that's to me is the biggest disappointment. He has violated the norms, the ethics, the the sort of like sacred obligation of scientific leaders to permit that scientific discussion to happen. He's essentially killed science. Hmm. In, 
around the science of COVID uh, as a consequence of his hubris. Right. Well, he has to have the same knowledge that you do, especially when it comes to masking. And it seems like he did. In the beginning, there was this March 2020, I believe, interview where he basically said, look, you can wear a mask if it makes you feel better, but we can't rely on it really to stop the spread of it. And that seemed like a pretty common sense position with what we knew about COVID. But then that really changed. Not only should you mask, but you have to double mask, even if those two masks are, you know, only the cloth masks, which we know don't have a great Um, They're not very effective. Um, And so it was interesting to see his positions change so much based on I'm not sure what the politics of it, whatever the CCP was doing. That's another disturbing aspect of it that we have tried to actually in some ways model our response to what the CCP has done, which is still locking down millions of people in Shanghai today. Um, And so I wish I knew a little bit more about what went on behind the scenes and in those conversations where he decided that he was going to reject and ignore the science and the studies that we both know that he knew about in favor of mask mandates and policies that we know were ineffective. I mean, on masks, it's really funny. Like he, he uh, in the early pandemic, as you say, Ali, he, he said uh, that the mask mandates work, uh, that, that masks don't work. Um, and I mean, there he was reflecting what the prior literature said with the, with these high quality randomized studies. Then he changed his mind and then admitted to lying before, a noble mm-hmm. lie in order to preserve high quality uh, masks for medical personnel. Which is horrible. Uh, okay, so that itself means that that you know if if you have a a public health leader who admits to lying to you that that just demolishes the trust that people have in you i I mean it's it's stunning to see that people haven't responded i mean i mean actually it's not true many many people now distrust him Uh, and i think that the start of that was that that admitting that he was lying then but the funny thing the ironic thing is that actually in february 2020 his position on mass that they don't work was not a lie that was the truth that was what the medical literature was saying at the time in fact, when he said he was lying later, that itself was a lie. Um, so I, I just it's a, it's a funny it's a funny funny thing. I mean, yeah. uh, in public health, you have this like sacred obligation to tell the public the truth uh, all the way across, or you lose your credibility. Uh, you know, to the best you know, I mean, you could be wrong. I mean, that lot, like it's very easy to be wrong, and when you have a rapidly changing science that we have, um, but and, and and the public will forgive you, but to to lie knowingly and then admit to lying knowingly, and then lie about lying. Yeah. That's something else. Okay, quick pause to tell you about one of my favorite sponsors, one of my favorite companies ever, and that is Carly Jean Los Angeles. My team was like, hey, you've got a Carly Jean ad tomorrow. Make sure you're wearing Carly Jean clothes. And I was like, well, I am wearing Carly Jean clothes pretty much every single episode, so that's not a problem. And lo and behold, I am wearing Carly Jean Uh, my Carly Jean top and my Carly Jean pants. And guess what is the best part about this tank and pants? Yes, they're comfortable. Yes, they're cute. If I do say so myself, super flattering. But also both pieces made in the US. Their entire basics line made in the USA. How incredible is that? It's so hard to find good quality pieces of clothing today that are actually made in the U.S. and Carly Jean Los Angeles has a ton. Plus, this is a company run by people who love the Lord. They've got the same values that we do. You can feel really good about sending your money there. If you go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com and use promo code AllieBasic, you save 20% off your first order of USA made basics. CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, promo code AllieBasic. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. I don't understand why 
Donald Trump didn't fire him, why he was able to stick around as long as he did. Donald Trump made a statement in a um, a speech yesterday um, that he just did the opposite of everything that Anthony Fauci said. But of course, that's not true. That's that's actually not a true statement. Unfortunately, even though I personally think there were a lot of good parts of the Trump pre- presidency, to me, one of the shameful parts was how much he listened to Deborah Burke, uh, Burks and Anthony Fauci and allowed them to lead in the way that they did. I mean, that kicked off the terrible and draconian COVID response that we've had. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually sort of had a front row seat in this because my friend Scott Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, mm-hmm. who's, we've had uh, him on as well. Oh, you have? Oh, fantastic. Yes. Um, uh, he, he, uh, you know, President Trump actually selected him in July as as a, as his, his personal advisor on on COVID policy, um, but he brought him in in the context of the leadership of the COVID uh, co- the co- the COVID con- commission by Deborah Burks and of course advised and, and, and uh, you know led behind the scenes by Tony Fauci. Uh, both of them, I think, were actually selected by Vice President Pence. And uh, you know, uh, to Scott uh, Atlas, he tried to he he tried to bring me, uh, Martin Kuldorf, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Ladapo, who's now the Surgeon General of, of Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, 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 this this very prominent pediatrician from Tufts, um, into the White House to advise the president just to have a meeting with him just to like to tell him look there are scientists out there that disagree with tony fauci and the and the lockdowns and you know i think trump's instincts were in that direction that's yeah. why he hired scott yeah uh, to, to, it, but the problem was that you know you're the president of the united states you decided in the middle of a war to change strategies you you bring in a new general and then you leave the old generals around to destroy the reputation of the new general you bring mm-hmm. in. I mean, you know, Tony Fauci and Burks were using their media power to absolutely demolish the reputation of Scott Atlas yeah. during in that in that summer. Because they viewed him as a mortal threat to their authority, which he was, right? Uh, the, and, and in fact, if you read Debbie Debbie Burke's book, she admits that she essentially worked to manipulate the president and get lockdowns in place successfully. Yes. She's averted the, the, the president of the United States, asserted her authority over and above the, the president of the United States. Um, and uh, I, I have to tell you, in terms of like Donald Trump himself, uh, the shocking thing to me is that is that, you know, the, 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 he didn't fire them. He didn't fire Burks and Fauci, even though I think he might have wanted to, because he was afraid that if he did, he would not get reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. That's not, in my mind, an excusable thing, right? The the the, the health of the American public comes above and beyond the uh, the the your reelection campaign. Even if you lose reelection, you should do the right thing in on, right. on such a critical point. Um, and uh, I, it's a it's a huge disappointment to me that he didn't uh, he, he 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 suspected and and very strongly understood that, that that they were advising him incorrectly, and still he left them on because if, if the the political advisors were telling him and he, he agreed with the political advisors that if he fired them, he would lose the election. That's not that's not acceptable to me. Yeah, of course. And I, I think the only people that really would have cared about that were the people that weren't going to vote for him anyway. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference. You wouldn't think this about Trump, but he actually does care a little bit more than you'd think what people on the left think everyone wants to be liked. I think that's a normal thing. But I think that that's kind of what got him is that he did not trust his instincts there. And he didn't go the direction of that people like you or Scott Scott Atlas would have advised. Um, let me read a little segment by Deborah Burks. She said, 
I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection. And I think we overplayed the vaccines and it made people then worry that it's not going to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. Um, and then so she said so she's basically admitting she uh, another part of what I would call the manipulation or kind of how she communicated things to the public and to the media versus what she really thought um, is that she thought that the vaccines really weren't going to be very effective. And yet they sold them. They sold them as if they were. I mean, we heard over and over again from the media, from Anthony Fauci, from Joe Biden, from Rachel Maddow, that if you get this vaccine, you will not get the virus and you won't spread it. That's why a lot of people got it. And not only that, that's why a lot of companies mandated it. And people lost their jobs over this because of this assertion that the vaccine was going to stop the disease in its tracks. That's obviously not what happened. What do you make of that? Uh, she's lying. All right. So she, she, uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, like, if she, if she actually believed that, she would have come out strongly against the mandates uh, in 2021. Um, I, I'll tell you, I, like, when um, the, the science and the timeline of the science is really important here. In December of 2020, what we knew was based on two very large randomized studies done, uh, actually three large randomized studies done um, on the J&J vaccine and the two mRNA vaccines. Um, from those, the, the end point of those studies was not prevention of severe disease. In fact, they didn't enroll enough patients to actually measure whether there was a statistically significant effect on a reduction of severe disease. It wasn't even prevention of transmission because the studies actually didn't look at transmission and the studies didn't look at whether people had any infection at all. It didn't, it didn't actually have as an endpoint the prevention of all infection. It had as the endpoint the prevention of symptomatic infection. Now, this is a disease that can spread asymptomatically. Um, that, that's true. Um, so what that means is that like, you, know, you, you know that it's preventing symptomatic infection for about three or four months. That's what the randomized studies showed uh, in December of 2020. Uh, that left you with having to make a guess there's two epidemiologically meaningful endpoints here. One is prevention of severe disease, and the other is prevention of transmission, right? Uh, I heard Burke say this. They, they made a guess based on hope that would stop transmission. Hmm. Now, why is that important? If it stops transmission, then that means, if, and, and the, the protection lasts a long time, then that means the vaccine can be used essentially to suppress the spread of the disease effectively to zero, as long as sufficient number of people get vaccinated. You heard... Burks, Fauci say this, we just need to get 60, 70, 80%, uh, you know, the number kept going up uh, yeah, uh, of, the, of the population vaccinated and the disease will go, and effectively they were implying that the disease would go away because they assumed, not based on the evidence, but based on, on an extrapolation from a trial, um, which turned out to be false, that it would stop transmission. In fact, as soon as it hit the real world, it was clear that it didn't stop transmission. You know, you had a heavily vaccinated societies like Israel uh, very early on, March, April, May, I forget exactly the timeline of 2021, uh, seeing very large COVID spread, large amounts of COVID spread. The method vaccine doesn't stop spread, as we found out, uh, you know, so to our detriment here. Um, so that means that the vaccine can't be used to stop the disease from spreading. It can't be used. It can't even be used for herd immunity uh, in the same, unless, unless you force people to get vaccinated every three or four months. Um, and even then, it's not clear because then you know, multiple boosters may not actually stop the spread of the disease for very long. It might be diminishing returns to that. Um, so you have this like situation where they 
extrapolated, including Debbie Burks, above and beyond what the evidence actually showed. On the other hand, um, the protection against severe disease, actually, I extrapolated there. I wrote an op-ed in December of 2020 in the Wall Street Journal with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford. We, we argued that the, the vaccine should be used to protect older people against severe disease, essentially to use the vaccine as a way of, of focused protection of the old. That extrapolation turned out to be right. The vaccine does actually decrease the odds of dying or going to the hospital if you get infected. And um, it was, it, I mean, if if uh, what we we argued in that Wall Street Journal article was you vaccinate older populations, that's as good as protection as you're going to get mm. that we have available to us, and then lift the lockdowns, right? You've essentially done perfect focus protection, as good as focus protection as we possibly can do, and then we lift the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was the right way to use the vaccine. Um, it, it turns out because it does actually protect against severe disease. Uh, I think the FDA and Trump uh, White House should have been calling for a vaccine trial that d- actually had a very large number of older people in it to see if it could protect against severe disease. We could have made that decision much more confidently in December of 2020. But it seemed clear to me that if it protects against symptomatic infection, then it must also protect against severe disease, you know, hospitalizations and deaths. And so that that turned out to be right. And it turns out to be more durable. Like I think eight, nine months after the vaccine, you still mm-hmm. are getting pretty good protection against severe disease. Uh, although I think it does diminish after a certain, uh, you know, certain, um, maybe you know, nine months, a year. Uh, I mean, in any case, the right thing then is to do is to, is to lift the lockdowns, uh, uh, you know, vaccinate the old, lift the lockdowns. Instead, we had this crazy policy of continuing the lockdowns for force vaccinating people, violating their informed consent, as you said, Ali, like people losing jobs, yes. um, you know, their religious conscience violated because some, you know, some of these vaccines are developed using fetal cell lines. Um, you know, I just, I think one of these, it's, it was, it basically tore society in two, mm-hmm. created an underclass of people out of people who are just making decisions that, that they viewed as good for their health mm-hmm. or, or, or consistent with their values. Um, and, and really undermined uh, the authority and trust that people had in public health. Yes, definitely. Now, what do you make of the concerns around heart issues, myocarditis? Do you think that is being overblown or do you think that is a sincere concern and a reason for people in a particular age group not to get it? Yeah, the, the evidence is abundantly clear from everywhere where these mRNA vaccines have been used, uh, especially in young men. The uh, risk of myocarditis is elevated. Myocarditis is inflammation of the heart, uh, the the uh, heart muscle, um, and uh, you know, it, it can be deadly. It it's certainly can be debilitating, uh, and is very clearly a side effect of this vaccine. Uh, the the estimates I've seen range between one in a thousand people, a young men who get the vaccine, to one in say five thousand. Uh, it's so it'll be somewhere in that range who have uh, myocarditis as a consequence of having got the vaccine. Uh, if I were in my early 20s as a young and a young man, I would worry about that. I mean, because the protection against against severe disease from the vaccine isn't actually all that important because I have very low risk if I were in my 20s um, from get dying if I get COVID. Whereas one in a thousand to one in five thousand of of uh, myocarditis is actually, I mean, I don't, I don't, I just don't want that. Uh, and it turns out that um, you know it doesn't protect you against getting COVID. So right. you still get the risk of myocarditis from COVID too. So it just doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it makes no sense to mandate it uh, for a population for whom it's not clear whether there's a net positive benefit. 
Mm-hmm. Now, we heard uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, when he was on Joe Rogan, he said then that from his, the knowledge and the information that he had at that point, that natural immunity was permanent. Now, we know that that's not true. I know many people who have gotten COVID twice. What is the benefit of natural immunity? Would you say that it is better than the protection that you get from the vaccine? Or is it something that should be totally discounted? Like it seems like the public (laughs) health experts have done. Yeah. So um, in October 2020, when I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, this idea to lift the lockdowns and do focus protection of the old, um, that the, it was very clear from the the biological literature that and the immunological literature that there was actually pretty significant protection provided by recovery from COVID. Right. You you uh, you have all these immune cell response, immune responses, including T cells and B cells and antibody production um, that that October that, you know, that lasted up to six months already um, that protected you against, in fact, even all against reinfection um, up until Omicron. There were all these studies that suggested, uh, like in, in you know, the, the the disease hit in Italy very early, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a study uh, in, in Italy tracking people who had got COVID very early in the pandemic over a full year, and they found that only three in a thousand had been reinfected over the course of that year. Now, um, when Omicron hit, it, the uh, even people who had previously been infected and recovered uh, started getting infected again. Um, so Omicron evades natural immunity, and it also evades the immunity provided by the vaccine. Like a lot of people who've been vaccinated, uh, got started getting sick. Uh, actually, I got I got uh, I got Delta, so I I had the vaccine in April of 2021, and then I got uh, COVID in August of 2021. Mm. Um, uh, so it you know the vaccine didn't provide protect against infection even even in the early days before Omicron, but certainly after Omicron, um, you had this vaccine immune evasion. The key thing is. It, although it, you had a probability of getting sick, even though you've been previously infected and recovered, the risk of severe disease in Omicron was actually low, um, lower than the first time. Most people, the vast majority of people who get it the second time are, are less likely to end up in the hospital, less likely to die from it the second time. And that's going to be true for, for the rest of your life, I think. I mean, you're going you're gonna to get this disease over and over and over again for the rest, rest of your life if there's other immune evasion variants. Um, but it seems to me like what is permanent is the protection against getting very, 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 very sick if you've had the COVID before and recovered. All right, another pause to tell you about our third sponsor for the day, and that is Crowd Health. What if you could have your health care put back in your own hands instead of it being sold to the highest bidder? Politicians, big pharma, health insurance companies make enormous profits at the expense of your health. And that is where Crowd Health comes in. Love this company, love this service. It's not health insurance, but it is a form of healthcare coverage. You can see any doctor you want, you just pay the first $500 and then you submit any bills from there and the crowd health community takes care of the rest. So no doctor networks, no huge premiums or deductibles, best of all, no surprises. This can be a real game changer in the community or this is a real game changer in the community healthcare industry. It can be a huge game changer for you and your family. You just pay one low monthly total, less than $200 a month for most people. So stop paying health insurance companies your hard-earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com now and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first six months for only $99 a month. That is incredible. 
That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com, use code Allie to sign up. Joincrowdhealth.com, promo code Allie. It's not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. It's just sad knowing all that we know. I mean, the information, the facts that you're talking about really are available to everyone. There seems to be something in the minds of both just the general population and those who are in charge, experts, whatever. I'm not saying it's completely nefarious on everyone's part, but there seems to be um, an inability or unwillingness to see that which is true. Either it's for political reasons or they've convinced themselves that this is the um, these are the right politics or this is the compass- uh, compassionate position to take when it comes to mask mandates and vaccine mandates. But really, when you look at the consequences of it, especially on young people, on vulnerable people, when it comes to mask and vaccine mandates, even at universities and the public school system, it's really sad to me. I think one of the saddest parts is that no one is going to be, certainly right now, no one is being held accountable. And I'm just not sure if anyone is ever going to be held accountable. I mean, you're talking about people who have died. I mean, I'm not saying that it is prevalent, that it is happening every day, but have died from taking this vaccine or they have adverse health outcomes from taking the vaccine that was mandated. They were going to lose their job or they weren't going to be able to go back to college because of this. And it just kind of seems like people are throwing their hands up in the air. And not only that, they're willing to do it again. That's really scary to me. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the fact that th- that uh, public health bureaucrats have ignored science on on natural immunity. I mean, essentially, they've spread misinformation on natural immunity, the effectiveness of mass of uh, the the fact that there is this enormous uh, risk gradient. The um, uh, the the they've they've over overstated the effectiveness of the vaccines in terms of stopping disease uh, transmission and spread. Um, all of these things are uh, I mean, have been absolutely shocking for me to watch because uh, these are not really all that controversial in the medical literature. Right. Uh, instead, what you have is um, you have like even like prominent doctors trying to like toe the propaganda line instead of like reflecting what actually the medical literature is saying in order to push their preferred policy. Um, it's a shocking violation of, of the public trust. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I, you know, I think. I think uh, maybe what, what you're what you're getting at, and I completely agree with. And I don't really don't have a a, a great answer. Is how do you regain that trust? How do you uh, reform the public, uh, the the medical profession, the public health, so that it becomes worthy of that trust again? Um, I think the first thing, and, and I just have still haven't seen it, is an open acknowledgement of error. Mm. That that look, uh, we 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 were trying our best. We made mistakes. I, I'll have to say, like they they. A lot of the people, especially in the public health bureaucracies, acted in ways that were not just hard to impute good faith to them. Um, right. I think a lot of them were mistaken in good faith about the science, um, but then they were low to admit that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. And and then they pushed policies like just take natural immunity, like immunity after COVID recovery. That was a basic fact. Uh, you could see it in the data. And yet they pushed it. Uh, the, ignoring it, the they called it a myth. It. They called it a conspiracy theory. Anyone who talked about <laughs> natural immunity, I mean, for the first time, probably in epidemiological history, someone who talked about natural natural immunity was pushed to the side as some kind of crazy kook. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I don't love the term natural immunity. It's more it's COVID recovery, like uh, gotcha. immunity after COVID recovery. But but I mean, because uh, it's that the natural immunity might be a little bit ambiguous. But I, yeah. but I agree with like you know I think with like with like HIV, you you get infected, you don't get immunity. But for the vast majority of viruses, certainly respiratory viruses, certainly for all the coronaviruses, you get infected and you provide protection against uh, both reinfection and against severe disease. Uh, for a long time, uh, you know, like you, you've had coronaviruses for sure. If you're for for human, other there are like four or five uh, coronaviruses that are in common human circulation. Uh, you probably had it first when you were little, very little, and then um, you recovered from it. It was a cold, and then the next time you got it, it was you know another cold, and then another cold, another cold. The problem with this virus was that it was. You know, it was it was novel. Like we, are, most people, you know, the vast majority of us didn't have any protection against it, really. Um, and so, and some of us reacted very, you know, when we got infected, we had this like horrible viral pneumonia, um, and uh, you know, for and some it led to death. Uh, it was most severe because we were immune naive. The the population now is no longer immune naive. Uh, the vast majority of the population has been infected and recovered, and of course, the vaccines pr provide protection against severe disease. Um, the, uh, by denying basic science, they pushed forward policies that have been incredibly socially divisive, harmed the lives of millions and millions. Uh, actually, and the lockdowns themselves caused death and destruction on a level that, that's just un unimaginable. Like, uh, yeah, I think there was an estimate that, um, uh, you know, we, we, with all this economic destruction we caused with these lockdowns led to hundred million people around the world thrown into, you know, dire poverty, less than $2 a day of income with with millions and millions of children starving as a consequence. Um, uh, you know, I think that, like the UN actually put an estimate in early 2021 that uh, 230,000 children had died of starvation as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by lockdowns in South Asia alone. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, so, so these lies have had consequences on the lives of so many, really, yes. really negative ones. And wow, this is, I mean, this is a Christian podcast. And so one thing that we heard within uh, some people in the church was that these mandates, um, these policies that we would call draconian were all about loving your neighbor. Well, there's always a flip side of that. When you're talking about kids thrown into poverty, when you're talking about some of the consequences that we talked about in the beginning, the increase in child abuse that we saw in this country, not to mention, I'm sure what also um, was seen worldwide, that doesn't seem like a very good way to love your neighbor. Um, I want to stay in this theme of the distrust of public health institutions um, that we are seeing that really has grown over the past few years. I wouldn't have described myself as someone who is distrustful or really questioned what doctors or epidemiologists or Anthony Fauci says because I don't have a medical degree. But over the past few years, I am one of millions and millions of Americans who have started to question the recommendations that we are getting from the people who call themselves public health experts. And it seems like there um, are new studies and new stories every day that kind of reaffirm that suspicion and that lack of trust that a lot of us have. One of them recently was about the effectiveness of SSRIs in treating depression. So for those who don't know, SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. These are typically the um, medications given to people who have depression because we have been told for a very long time that chemical imbalance and low serotonin is what causes depression. And there was a study that came out in the, in, uh, the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry that said, well... 
not really. It's not really a chemical imbalance. It's not really about low serotonin. And all of these medications that have been given to people for depression probably haven't been working for a lot of people because the premise was wrong. So, I mean, again, you're talking about something that has had massive, massive consequences on people based on what seems like kind of faulty science. What is your take on all of that? I mean, when I went to medical school in the, in the mid-90s, um, one of my professors told me, you know, half of what you're, we're teaching you is not true. Uh, the problem is you don't, you're not going to know which half until much later. Um, uh, you know, it's, science does change. Uh, we think about science as this, like, uh, exalted knowledge of, of the, a, a, a source of ultimate truth. Right. Um, but it's not. Uh, what it is is provisional knowledge. Like, okay, given what we know and what we've seen based on like open discussion and 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 experimentation and and testing, here's our our, our guess. Now, like the idea that uh, serotonin, uh, 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 low levels of serotonin are, the, are really at root of you know the dark times of the soul people have um, can have in, during depression always seemed to me is like overly simplistic. Mm. Um, and so I, in some sense, I'm not surprised that there is there's a revision of this view. There's got to be more to depression than simply low serotonin levels or you can just, you know, I mean, or or SSRIs would have fixed fixed all depression. And in fact, depression levels are quite high still. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're on SSRI, it won't help you. I mean, I think a lot of people have been helped by SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Ali, a lot of people haven't been. Uh, I think right the right way to think, look about that, uh, that result is that we do not understand in any really truly deep way, what causes some people to be depressed, and and um, you know the 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 the, the uh, a way to address it is multifaceted, uh, and I think uh, a, a drug may not be the way to, to to help it for for many people. I think as as many people who've been on SSRIs have found out, um, and I think uh, uh, like expecting the healthcare system to solve those kinds of problems, uh, it, you know, with one hundred percent certainty, where we just don't understand in any deep way exactly what causes them um i mean is, is, is i think is asking too much uh, we exalted science we put it as the as, as as the as the sort of the highest source of all truth when in fact um if you look if you do science uh for a living really what you your my, my impression is one of humility before how much we uh, how much we don't actually still know um there's a lot we do know uh, but there's a lot we don't know uh, and what makes science exciting and fun is this I, at this thing where you can like discover together as a community what is true and what isn't. You mm -hmm. can have these these fun fights with people, tempered by data, tempered by experiment that that slowly reveal you know how how the world works. Um, and uh, I think that that's that's the spirit in which I look at that study. I mean, it's yeah, it's it, it's it's um, uh, uh, the 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 problem has been the last twenty some years or twenty. 30 years is we've overemphasized this chemical imbalance idea as a source of knowledge about what this what what caused it and before that it was the Freudian idea you know it was like what happened to you when you were little uh, you know with, with your, your with your how your mom treated you or something um, uh, I mean all of these like simplistic ideas cannot possibly encapsulate why uh, we have depression why we have the you know it's these these are like uh, big human things and to pretend we have a mechanistic uh, understanding that's comprehensive to, 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 to explain it all is has always seemed to me as hubris. Last sponsor for the day, you know them, you love them, and that is Good Ranchers. You guys know, we talked about earlier this week on Monday, they are trying to make us eat bugs, crickets, locusts, 
mealworms. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep eating hamburgers and T-bone steaks and ribeyes and seafood and better than organic chicken, pre-marinated, not pre-marinated, all from Good Ranchers. They have their meat all, they get their meat all from American farms and ranchers. That's what I love about them. They're helping revitalize this industry in the United States. All the meat shows up right to your front door on dry ice, individually wrapped, vacuum sealed. You just put it all in your freezer. We got a deep freezer just for our good ranchers meat. I love it. I love knowing that one part of my meal every night is always taken care of. It's really, really good meat. We love Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. You can use code Allie to get $30 off your order plus free express shipping. Goodranchers.com slash Allie. Code Allie for that discount. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Speaking of hubris, to me, a lot of scientists exhibit a lot of hubris in saying things like trust the science, follow the science, and then marginalizing or intimidating anyone who, as you said, bringing their own facts to the table, their own data, their own perspective to the table, disagrees with what the majority opinion in the scientific community is. People are kind of pushed to the side as crazy or as kooky or as dumb for questioning things like masks or particular side effects of uh, the vaccine. Of course, there were people who 20 years ago were even saying, hey, this whole idea of low serotonin levels being the sole driver of depression is probably not right. And they were cast as crazy as quacks. That seems to be a big problem from my perspective in science in general, that eventually science seems to come around and catch up to what some, you know, people were saying, some dissenters were saying, but it takes a, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage for people like you to kind of stand against what people like Anthony Fauci are saying when it really shouldn't. It really shouldn't take courage. Like you shouldn't really be worried, not you in particular, but no one should be worried about losing their job for saying, hey, here's what the science says it's leading in a different direction. That to me shows that it's become less driven by facts, less driven by data and more driven by, I don't even know, politics, power, money, pharmaceutical companies. All I know is that it doesn't seem to be about the well-being of the people that the scientific community is supposed to be serving. I mean, there's uh, all of what you said is entirely true. I mean, it's like, and it's it's not like that it's new. Um, there's this fa- famous physicist named Max Planck who uh, who uh, had this wry observation about how, he he said science advances one obituary at a time, mm. right? The, the the idea is that um, yeah that uh, there's this power structure within science and people at the top of the hierarchy. Re- I mean, there's a lot of ego. It's not even yeah. money of people um you know they they, they want to be seen as the smart ones um yeah. the, the wise ones and uh challenges from from uh to their to their uh, uh intellectual authority are uh, some of them react very negatively to it like in, in my case for instance um when we wrote the great barrington declaration francis collins who was the head of the nih at the time mm-hmm. the national institute of health actually I, someone i admired i mean I'm, I'm christian and he's been an outspoken christian in a, in a position of of authority inside science, um, he wrote an email uh, to Tony Fauci four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. We wrote it on October 4th and October 8th. He wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Sunetra Gupta, who's one of the world's best epidemiologists yes. in, in, 
Northwestern University, and then Martin Kuldorf, one of the world's best biostatisticians at Harvard University, called the three of us fringe epidemiologists. Yeah. And then he called for a devastating published takedown uh, of us. Uh, and then I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip. And in fact, why did I want to kill people? Right. Of course. Um, that's what they do. And I, and I saw quotes from Tony Fauci and effectively, willfully uh, sort of misinterpreting what we were arguing for in the Great Britain Declaration, which is focus, focus protection. They organized a, a media campaign to smear us and destroy us. Uh, in order to maintain the illusion that they were right, that they that they had this like this consensus behind them in favor of lockdowns, when in fact the consensus never existed. Hmm. The way that top scientists behave sets the tone for um, for for this kind of behavior. I mean, here in this case, they explicitly created a propaganda campaign in order to in order to keep the the public illusion that they that they that they uh, that they were re reflecting a consensus of science um, in, intact, when in fact there never was one. Um, mm. And I, I, I took I've got to show you. I, I have a, a a card that I got uh, that now has uh, here we go. It has fringe epidemiologist on it. There you um, go. Now you wear yeah. the title proudly. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to even put into words how destructive that kind of attitude and those kinds of actions are. And yes, Francis Collins has been held up as kind of a a hero, not just of science, but of the faith within Christian churches. I mean, he made his rounds to different churches during COVID talking about the life saving, you know, the life saving and also almost like the spiritually salvific power of like wearing a mask and forcing vaccines and things like that. So that was very disappointing um, just to end, I, I want to get your thoughts also on this Alzheimer's drug scandal. This was published um, in Science, and it looked at this six-month investigation that uh, provided really strong support for um, the fact that this drug and many of the drugs used to treat Alzheimer's, um, that the data had been manipulated to look like they are actually more effective than they are when really they almost have a 100% failure rate. So we're talking about hubris and power and money and all of those things really coming together in one story, again, affecting disproportionately, negatively, the most vulnerable people among us, beloved grandparents who suffered and died from Alzheimer's, who put their hope in these drugs and were told, hey, maybe there's a good chance that they could work. And of course, they failed. What's your take on this story? Uh, so uh, this is this one's even worse than the SSRI. The SSRI story is is, is normal science. Like we you you, you have a, a new discovery which overturns an old idea. Yeah. Right. That's normal science. Um, here, what you have is uh, a century-old idea uh, that that what causes dementias, or at least one of the major causes of dementia, is the uh, development of plaques, amyloid plaques in your in your in in, in your in your brain that cause the the kind of like loss of loss of memory and loss of uh, all all the all the things that that, that are connected with with dementia and alzheimer's um that idea was was century old like and uh when i was in medical school i was taught that that this was potentially a cause of a lot of dementias but you won't know unless you do an autopsy after someone's died to see mm. if those plaques existed mm. um that this was in the 90s uh, since the, what happened over the over or over the night after the 90s was that uh, people developed scanning methods to measure the presence of, of amyloid plaques. Um, and there was a study done, I think, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, published in a very prominent journal um, that that documented these plaques were very common. Um, uh, 
It turns out that those that study, which was a, again published in a very influential journal, had a big influence on solidifying this uh, this amyloid hypothesis as a cause of Alzheimer's. Um, used fake data, like they just they it was it was fraudulent. The study was just pure fraud. Wow. Uh, that that that's come out. That's that is exactly the, the what the, the what's ha- what's happened recently. Like that that the exposure of that study is fraudulent has just come out. I mean that happens in science too. Like you know people again, the, you you publish a, a paper in a top journal, all of a sudden you're you 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 get invitations to conferences, you get grants, you get you know uh, uh, your your social status rises among other scientists. Um, you you know you get tenure, um, and uh, what's what's happened? What, what the problem there was that. That study, by confirming the century-old hypothesis, led drug developers to try to find drugs that could reduce the level of amyloid in your brain. And uh, so we have a decade and a half of these of drug developers who very successfully created drugs that do that. But then when they run clinical trials on them, they don't actually help people in terms of you know the the the, the slow deterioration of memory, the the all of the the the, the real problems that that come from from uh, from dementia. That 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 uh, that turns out those drugs just don't work. Hmm. So essentially, the main problem is that that paper led to a decade and a half of of, of a dead end, um, with you know billions of dollars thrown into to research trying to address this amyloid problem, when in fact the problem still is. How do you um, how do you care for how do you treat someone who's who has this slow de- de- deterioration of their memory, their capacity to to function in society that comes with Alzheimer's and with dementia? Yes, oh, sad. I know this has been really hard to read for people who have had people in their lives who have suffered from Alzheimer's and maybe even took these drugs with the hope that they were going to help. Um, this is a big question, but to close this out, if you were in charge of all health, just health in general in the United States. I mean, we're talking about you can make decisions for how the pharmaceutical companies run, for health policy, for how science is developed and then published and communicated to the media. What would be your biggest reforms? Like if you were put in charge of all of it and you got to make the decisions, how would you change things so that the public could trust the public health system and the entities involved again because right now the distrust is really high uh, that's funny Alec, because the, the 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 key thing is uh is that i i would make myself not in charge um you, you have to you have to have a very wide diversity of voices for a, co- a topic as complicated as that hmm. and so the first thing i would do is i would bring in people that disagreed with me uh to to, to sit there and to tell me i'm wrong um uh, you, uh, in terms of like the, in terms of like, I think there's like several different kinds of issues around this. So, for instance, take the NIH. The NIH funds the research of, of very many biologists and medical doctors and scientists who are working on on health issues. Um, it's, it's really clear from the COVID pandemic that what's happened inside the NIH is that uh, a very small number of people. Uh, have decided that they know exactly what the right, what uh, exactly where 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 all the right scientific investments are going to be, what what's likely to produce the right right results, um, instead of diversifying the ideas that they support, even supporting ideas that they may not think are promising because you know they they, they may be wrong, um, uh, they they've focused all their money and attention, and not the Alzheimer's example is a good example on one set of hypotheses. They, you create this like concentrated power structure. 
Um, and I think that needs to be disrupted. Um, it, funding in science should be very similar to funding in in like in the tech world, where you have you know you don't know which company is going to work, and so what you do is you fund uh, a very large number of companies. You expect many of them to fail, right? Because you don't know in advance. Uh, you, you diversify the portfolio. I think that kind of diversification desperately needs to happen in science funding. Hmm. Uh, in public health. Um, I mean, there just needs to be a recommitment to science and a recommitment to the values of, of, the, the, of, of the public and an absolute commitment to never telling a noble lie again. The purpose of public health isn't to manipulate behavior of the public. The purpose of public health is to work with the public, give them as good information as possible to know, and then understand the needs and desires of the public so that, uh, that together it can create uh, situations where health can happen. Um, the, the, the current idea in public health, so clearly this priesthood who knows better about how right. to manage you and manage the public, um, and they'll tell you what to do and they'll be very disappointed when you just, when you disagree with them or don't obey them. Um, and I'll tell you another thing in public health, it's become clear to me is that, uh, so many people on, in professional, uh, physicians in public health are, are, are on the left. Now, that by itself is not wrong. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the problem is that, that many of them look down on people on the right. It's become a political position for them mm -hmm. as opposed to a professional position. And that, uh, and what's happened on is this political divide in public health, whereby, you know, if, if you are being dictated to, lectured to by people who are don't, you don't agree with politically and look down on you because of your politics, you're not going to respond very well, completely understandable. Um, and so what's happened is you have this like political divide in public, but this this public health where um, uh, where half the country just doesn't agree with, they just will not trust you because they think you're looking down on them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you have to diversify public health so that it has, uh, it reflects America. You cannot have one political stripe in charge of basically every aspect of public health, uh, and which is where we are. Uh, and so if public health is going to regain the trust of America, it has to look like America, uh, ideologically, I think. Uh, I wouldn't have said that before the pandemic, but it's clear that what's happened is uh, public health uh, cannot communicate with 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 uh, with Red America in a way that's trustworthy because yeah. they don't are unable. They, I mean, in principle, they could if they respected. Even if you disagree with someone, you can respect them. But it seems to me like a lot of public health just doesn't respect people they disagree with politically. Yeah. Um, and I just you just can't have that. So I would I would work very hard to reform that. Medicine also needs to return to evidence based medicine. I mean, it's uh, through the pandemic, it's become a tool of propaganda and of of dissemination of public health messages. Message uh, medicine for it to work, doc patients have to trust their doctor as looking out for their interests, not just for the public interest. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been a big problem in medicine is that uh, is is that uh, a lot of doc uh, patients no longer trust doctors because they think that the doctors are out for something else other than their own uh, health and well-being. Yep. Yep. That's absolutely true. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. And thank you so much um, for your insight as well. I really appreciate it as well as just for your, um, your courage, your willingness to kind of get in the public arena and defend the scientific position. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.